Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Well, thank you, worship team, and welcome. Good morning. It's a privilege for me to be here and to be sharing with you this morning. Uh, If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that this is our third week in an ongoing series in which we are uh, taking a look at the teachings of Jesus as found in that profound section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, located in in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Our focus this morning could very well be one that Jesus himself would choose to speak on if he were on stage this morning instead of me, because this is a message that he very intentionally shared with his followers, which many of us are here this morning. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not yet come to that place in your life where you've chosen to place your faith in Jesus Christ and follow him, then let me assure you that you're in the right place too, that you're more than welcome here this morning. And many of us uh, were at that same stage at some point in our lives as well. So I want to just jump right in and take a look at our passage. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app, turn uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be beginning in verse 13. And if not, you want to just follow along with the scripture up on the screen, then that's fine too. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 13. Jesus talking to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's just pause and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, open up our hearts, our minds, and our understanding to the truth that your Son Jesus intended when he spoke these words. Amen. Now, a good place to start in our quest to to fully understand this teaching, as it often is, is by taking a little bit of a look at the context. Now, I've already told you that on this occasion, Jesus is speaking to his followers. They're his primary audience. Now, we see from the text that there's a crowd of people that are around. He's doing this in a public place. There's a crowd of people around that are listening in, and observing what's going on, but uh, the, the first two verses of this chapter makes it clear that Jesus' disciple is, disciples is who he's giving this teaching to primarily. And so then I think the next thing to look at is, as we check out the context, is, is what happened immediately before this context? And then let's ask ourselves the question, is this a continuation of what Jesus was talking about then? Is he, is he expanding on what he said there? Or is this the beginning of a whole new train of thought? And so if we look at what, what came, what preceded this passage, 
we see that it was that section of Scripture called the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. And if you were here the last two weeks, you'll realize that that was the focus of, of uh, the first two messages in this series, series as we took a look at the eight Beatitudes or the eight great blessings that Jesus says are available to followers of his. And it was the eighth blessing in verses 10 through 12 that, that uh, was immediately, that immediately came before what Jesus said next in the passage that we're going to look at today. And so in that passage, in verses 10 to 12, the eighth blessing, the one that, uh, that would have probably had the disciples shaking their heads a bit and going, that's a blessing, was this one recorded in verses 10 to 12. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For this, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus tells his followers that offense will be taken. That there will be insults. There will be criticisms. There will be false accusations. There will even be physical persecutions coming their way because of their decision to align themselves with Jesus. So, so what might a natural feeling be or a natural thought be when hearing such things? A natural human response. When I was 12 years old, uh, my family and I moved from a little small town in central Alberta to Vancouver. And I found that quite intimidating for a while. I, uh, for, for, that, for a period of my life, I just desperately wanted to fit in. I was already the new kid. And I already towered a full head taller than anybody else around in my grade. And I just didn't want to stand out in any other way as well. During that period of my, of my life, the question that I feared the most was, what does your dad do? Because when I had that question raised to me or asked of me, it drew me up to the surface. You see, I couldn't hide the fact that I was a Christian and that I went to church when I had to admit that my dad was a pastor. And I hated that question. Now, glad to say that later, as, you know, later on in life, as, a, as an older teen, I came actually to the place where I was proud of what my dad did. But even though the mild ridicule that I would have experienced in teasing falls extremely low on the overall persecution scale, I still recall very vividly that fear, that draw to keep my faith hidden. Now maybe Jesus realized that his disciples might be having similar thoughts after hearing about this eighth blessing. Maybe they were thinking that it might be wiser, safer, just in light of what they just heard to to just stay a little more undercover, a little more keeping it to themselves, this faith in, in this Jesus fellow. Keep it under wraps. Quite possibly realizing that his disciples were human, Jesus decides maybe to make a preemptive strike here on that way of thinking. And he shares this instruction that we're going to be looking at this morning that explains to them how crucial their role is in the world around them and how, as a result, it's absolutely imperative that their faith not remain hidden. Just not an option. 
Then I think it's important to recognize that on this occasion, Jesus chose to use the communicational vehicle of metaphors. Um, A metaphor is a figure of speech that makes a comparison between two things that are unrelated, but that have similar um, common uh, characteristics that they share. A significant uh, benefit of employing metaphors is that it often gives us a fresh and new and a unique perspective, uh, which, which often can bring in new insight into, into the, uh, what's being compared. Now, simple metaphors are, are part of our, human langu- our English language and I think make our, our, our communication richer as a result, but they're all around us. We, we probably don't even realize. She has a heart of gold. Uh, he's a late bloomer. She's an early bird. They're rolling in the dough. It's a slippery slope. Life is a highway. Um, it's like talking to a brick wall. I like metaphors. They're music to my ears. Now, some metaphors are intended to be more unique, one of a kind, where the, where the uh, communicator wants to really uh, make what he's saying have more impact and be more memorable. Now, for an example, if I said to you, that there's a lot of uncertainty in this life and what tomorrow holds is unclear. My bet would be that the vast majority of you would have long forgotten that before you even hit the parking lot this morning. But when Tom Hanks, as his character Forrest Gump, said, when he said, my mama always said, life is a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Now, 26 years later, those of us that heard that still find that saying in our minds and in our memories almost as fresh as when we heard it. Emily Dickinson could have simply said, hope is intimate and persistent. Instead, she penned the words, hope is the thing with feathers that perches on your soul. It sings the song without the words and never stops at all. Talk about broadening that out and making it more memorable. Simon and Garfunkel could have simply said, I'm there for you, buddy. But they were right in thinking that it would be deeper and more meaningful to go with, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. And Jesus, too, on this occasion, could have just communicated this in plain vanilla language. Or he could have come up with a couple of really big, fancy theological terms to explain what he was calling his disciples to. But instead, Jesus chose to go with metaphors. And he decided to compare what, the, what he was calling, what his disciples' call and role was to two very well-known everyday items in their world, and in ours, of course, too, salt and light. Now, I think in order for us to fully grasp Jesus' teaching here, I think we need to try to comprehend the significance that salt and light held in that day and age and in that world. Because, quite frankly, both of those substances have lost much of their significance to us in our day and age. Let's take a look uh, at our first metaphor, one of salt. Now, today, here in North America, while we still dump it into our water softeners and occasionally sprinkle it on icy sidewalks, For most of us, we consider salt just to be a cheap, generic seasoning, and often in a negative light as we're worried about our sodium content. But in Jesus' day, 
it was a little different. Um, sure, they still used seasonings back then, but where we can go to our, in our kitchens and open a cupboard or our pantry and we have dozens of spices there on the shelves and combinations of spices to choose from, in those days, at day and age, salt was often the only option. Other spices were rare and extremely expensive, and so uh, salt was really all that they had at their disposal to turn, you know, to enhance what was an extremely bland diet otherwise. And in fact, in, in uh, cultures in the, in the region, the sharing of salt, the serving of salt with a meal was seen as a sign of friendship. Um, also, salt was a key component in, in many of the ceremonial offerings. It was one of the, one of the ingredients in the recipe that was given uh, in the book of Exodus to the priests for, for them creating the incense that was specifically supposed to be made and placed in front of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. It was, uh, there were certain offerings that were to be presented to the Lord where the instructions included that they were to be salted before they were offered to God. There was a covenant of salt mentioned in the Old Testament uh, that uh, was an eternally binding agreement between God and man. And in an, in an extension of that, the eating of salt together became a way of two human parties uh, legally making, making an agreement between them legally binding. Salt was a disinfectant, really the only disinfectant uh, available to most people back then. Newborn babies were rubbed with salt. Salt was used in, in various medicines and for the treatment of various ailments. Uh, people still gargle with salt sometimes when they've got a sore throat coming on. And due to its many important uses, and, and because uh, it was scarce in some areas, uh, the, the salt became a valued uh, unit of exchange. So you could actually make payment and purchase things with salt instead of money, oftentimes. Um, the expression, a person is worth their salt, comes from, the, from ancient Rome, where soldiers in the Roman army were often paid with salt, in part, or they were given an allowance for the, for the intent purpose of purchasing salt, so that they could salt their, their food and preserve their food. Uh, on long marches and, and when they went off to war. Now, um, probably the, the, the final use of salt that I want to mention this morning is probably, it was probably the most vital use of salt back in that day uh, because in a hot Middle Eastern land with no ice or refrigeration, salt was the only viable means of preserving uh, food for, from preventing or impeding rot and decay. So salt as a preservative was hugely important. So for all these reasons mentioned, salt was an absolutely crucial uh, item or substance for living in that time and place. Now here's an interesting kind of a side note, but have you ever wondered when you're reading through uh, Scripture why there would be in the middle of the land that God had prepared for his people, the promised land, the land that's described as flowing with milk and honey, why would there lie an 80, well, at least what, at, the, at that time 
in that time, and this was probably an 80-kilometer-long body of water in which nothing could live called the Dead Sea. If you were preparing a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, would you put a huge lake in it where nothing could live in it, no fish, couldn't drink the water? So it turns out that the Dead Sea was the primary source for precious salt for the entire region. It turns out that the water in the Dead Sea is almost 10 times saltier than any water in any of the Earth's oceans. It turns out that there are salt cliffs running along the southwestern shores of the Dead Sea that are over seven miles long, 700 feet high, where the composition of those cliffs is 80% salt. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, when God makes a provision, when God gives a good gift, he's never stingy. So, with this understanding in place, this appreciation for salt in their world, let's take a look at what Jesus had to say about salt. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus said, you followers of mine are the salt of the earth. Now, at minimum, what his disciples would have heard when when they heard Jesus saying that, in light of the the value and the importance and and the roles, the crucial roles that salt, salt played in their worlds, at minimum, they would hear him saying, You, as my followers, have significant value and purpose. But I think Jesus' uh, meaning and intentions went deeper than that. In verse 14, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, Jesus tells tells his disciples that you are the light of the world. And I think it's informative here to see that Jesus intentionally uses two very different words uh, in in these two verses. One interpreted earth and one interpreted world. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The word that Jesus uses here in verse 13 was the Greek word pronounced gay, but it's spelled G-E. And this word was widely used very specifically about this physical earth. The physical earth and the inhabitants that lived on it, including people. Now, in the creation record found in the book of Genesis, we learn that when sin, when sin entered the picture, brought on by, by the willful dif- disobedience of God by the first humans, uh, we see that death entered the picture as well. Not God's design, not at all his intention, but the door was opened for death to enter as well because it is the immutable byproduct of sin. From that point on, this whole earth and everything in it has been in a fallen state. Fallen from the heights that God first intended with his creation, this paradise that he had created for us. But since that time that sin and death has entered the picture, the earth and everything in it has been living in a a state of deterioration and decay. We're on the pathway, this whole earth, and its inhabitants are on the pathway leading towards death. It's a fallen earth. 
And Jesus says, you, my followers, are the salt of the earth. Not one of the many sources of salt, but you are the salt of the earth. Jesus is saying that their presence and influence will act as in much the same way that salt did as a preservative. Penetrating and infusing the environment around them, impeding decay. Look at this passage written by the Apostle Paul found in Romans 8, verses 19 to 22. For the creation work waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present moment. And I realize that to some ears, this sounds like an arrogant statement. We are the salt of the earth. We are the preservative that prevents rot and decay. But really, and we'll see this more in a minute, there's absolutely nothing in this statement or in this truth that we can be proud of or can boast of. As we'll see later, this, this is all about God. What we need to be reminded of is that if we try to do this in our own strength, then salt, if it's misapplied, becomes distasteful and caustic. Now, I want to touch briefly on, before we leave this salt metaphor, on that, that back portion of verse 13 that says, But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, some people use this verse as an argument against eternal security. They say, aha, the salt once had savor, lost its savor, and now has been discarded as useless. And so, consequently, we can be saved, we can lose our salvation, and then God will discard us as useless. Now, there's no way that in our short bit of time this morning, with the rest that we have to cover, that we can even begin to cover that topic in any kind of depth. But just let me say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it's dangerous to read, to, to, to read too much into a metaphor. And secondly, it's also dangerous to base our uh, hard beliefs and theology on one single passage of Scripture. And so in, in order to come to a conviction, a, a firm belief on, on something like this, we need to look at all that, that Scripture has to say on that subject and then weigh and compare and, and uh, let all of that inform our, our decision. And so I'm not going to arrive at a judgment on exactly in this area on what, that, what this verse is saying. But I think that, uh, that at a minimum, it's, it's uh, very accurate to say that Jesus does offer a warning here. Um, and it's a warning that uh, at minimum shows that our usefulness and our effectiveness as his followers can largely be lost uh, if we're not careful. An interesting fact is that pure salt does not lose its savor. Salt loses its savor 
when it becomes contaminated and diluted with foreign substances, which I think makes the warning to us pretty clear to try to remain pure in order not to lose our effectiveness. Okay, let's take a look at our second metaphor, the metaphor of light. Now, while we understand theoretically the importance of light, um, our experience in our everyday lives uh, has greatly reduced um, our appreciation of it and its benefits, largely due to our ease of access to light. All we need to do in our world is flip a switch, push a button, voila, there's light. And so consequently, our experience with darkness is extremely limited. And you can't fully appreciate or you can't fully understand light until you fully experience darkness. But the people in Jesus' day didn't have that problem. Their options for bringing light into their world were very restricted and way, way more inefficient. And so they were much more intimately acquainted with darkness. And as a result, their uh, appreciation of light was exponentially heightened. And in that context, then, in verses 14 to 16, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here Jesus stresses that the followers of his who live undercover, who live secretly, who hide their faith from others around them, are foolish and functionally useless. One of the examples he uses here is, how foolish would it be to light a lamp only to put it under a bowl and thus totally negate its effectiveness and its use? Jesus is saying that any attempt by his followers at anonymity is just um, fundamentally wrong. He said, in the same way that the builders of a, of a town were very intentional about locating it on the top of a hill, so God was very intentional that his people would live out in the open, that they would have their actions, their words, and their deeds uh, visible and observable to the people around them, acting as beacons to everyone around. Now, in understanding how Jesus' followers come to be this light of the world, and I'll come back to that word world in a minute. I think it's important for us to take very quickly a look at a little, a little bit more what the Bible has to say about light that's relevant to us this morning. So uh, beginning in, in 1 John verse 1-5, we see that the first truth that I want us to consider is that God himself is light. 1 John 1-5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Then in the book of Revelation where John is, is revealing this, uh, this incredible vision that God gave him of, of what's going to come in the future after Jesus' return and when God's bringing his new heaven and earth to bear. And, and he makes this statement. He says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb, Jesus, is its lamp. So God is light. Next, let's consider that in the Old Testament, 
The, uh, the coming Messiah was prophesied to be a great light, among other things. One of the more uh, well-known messianic prophecies is found in Isaiah 9. It's the one that you'll recognize that we hear a lot about at Christmas time, uh, especially verses 6 and following here. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Uh, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But the, the, that prophecy starts in, in verse 2, where this Messiah, this coming Messiah, is described this way. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now here we start getting a little insight into this darkness that exists, that requires a great light to come. I like the way the old King James Version words the end of, of verse 2 in Isaiah 9. It says this, Those that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. You see, God is light. But when humanity sinned, sin and death entered the picture. And from that point on, in our, in our fallen state, sin and death now stand between us and a holy God, who is light. And the result of that is that we... All, all of the earth, all of its inhabitants, all of, inhabitants, all of us as humans reside in this deep shadow that's being cast from sin and death. And so into that, a great light is needed. A light that's able to pierce that darkness and, and overcome it. Then the pro promised Messiah arrives hundreds of years later. And Jesus comes on the scene and it's revealed to us that Jesus is this long-anticipated light of the world that was talked about. In the opening verses of the Gospel of John where Jesus is being introduced, he's described like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself makes it crystal clear and affirms this himself a little bit later in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, where it said, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A little bit later, Jesus makes some interesting statements that indicate that a transition is coming here in this, uh, in this area of light to the world. In John 9, 5, uh, Jesus says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. A little bit later in John 12, verses 36, uh, Jesus says, Believe in the light while you have the light. And then he says something very interesting. That you may become children of light. The Apostle Paul confirms this truth that the followers of Jesus have become the, uh, the light bearers in this world. In Ephesians 5.8, where it says, For you were once in, in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. You and I, if we are a follower of Jesus, are the light of the world. So what is this light that's supposed to shine out from us? 
Is it self-generated? Do we have to drum it up? In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 to 6, we read, we read, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So the light that we are to shine out into this world is all about Jesus. Nothing to do with ourselves. We are called to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus out into the darkness around us. To people who are living in the shadow of sin and of death. Our lives, our words, our deeds are to act as beacons that draw, that attract, that light the way for those around us. The early movement uh, of Christians called themselves the way. And I think it's eternally imperative that we as the children of light that we, as the light of the world, don't hide our faith. Don't live secret, as secret lives as Christians. Don't keep our light under the cover. Because the people living in great darkness around us desperately need to find the way. So our lights have to shine. Now, when Jesus called us to the salt of the earth, the, the word there we talked about spoke specifically of this earth. And its inhabitants. But the word that Jesus chooses to use here when he says that you are the light of the world has a much broader scope. He uses the Greek word cosmos, which is where we get our English word cosmos from. The only difference is the Greek word started with a K, ours starts with a C. Our word came, it's a derivative from that Greek word. And the scope of that word is, has a much, much larger scope than, than the one used to to say that we're the salt of the earth. In addition to this earth and its inhabitants, the cosmos includes the entire universe beyond. That's a big thought. That we as God's followers, as we as the followers of Jesus, are the light bearers for the entirety of God's creation. You and I, Jesus said, are the light of the cosmos, including the universe and beyond, infinity and beyond. And the full implications of that have yet to be worked out. But what an amazing privilege. What an amazing calling. I close this morning with this challenge found in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, in the ancient Greek games, which the author of Hebrews would have been fully aware of and probably had somewhat in mind writing this passage, the winner of the race was not the person who crossed the finish line first. 
The winner of the race was the one who crossed the finish line first with their torch still burning. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Leave here this morning and let your light so shine that others around you see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Because the people built on a hill called Calvary cannot be hidden. Amen.